This is the second Sunday of Easter, and on this Sunday every year, the gospel reading is the gospel about doubting Thomas, and often for the preacher, that's the centerpiece of the sermon because it affords the opportunity to talk about doubt. I'm going to say something about the, uh, the gospel later, but I thought I'd say some things today about the bodily resurrection of Jesus because um, it's a topic that is of interest to me, and I had to do a lot of preparing for Episcopalian 101 yesterday, and so I, I, have, I, have, I have material. <laughs> the uh, first thing I want to remind us, I do it every, always in Easter, the great 50 days, the fourfold shape of what it is we're doing which really sets the predicate for the whole of the liturgical year. The presence of the light of Christ, the illuminative processes of God uh, in the life of the church, showing us the way, symbolizing the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel in the wilderness, but also the internal illuminative processes that the light of Christ brings to uh, all faithful people with regard to gaining greater clarity and assurance and understanding about God's purpose in your life and uh, how you can live a life more congruent with God's will and purpose and how you can shine the light on your dark places that show you the way perhaps to do some improving about um, uh, operating your life with uh, fewer corrupt motives but also using the light to shine on all of those aspects of your character that are godly and allow you to share with others the practical wisdom you have learned over time. The next thing we read about, of course, is uh, the, the, the history of salvation. And we're going to be reading from Acts for most of uh, the uh, Sundays after Easter, which is the story of how the, the, the early church uh, appropriates the gospel message and how they understand it and what some of the pre primitive preaching was in the early church. If you want to amaze your friends, you can call it the kerygma, which means the early proclamation. That's the Greek word for that. And so we'll hear from Peter and from other people in the book of Acts. And then we'll be reading in the, the epistles about how the resurrection faith uh, is present to us. And then finally, the two dominical sacraments, which are part of our self-understanding. Baptism, where we are initiated into the body of Christ, where we receive the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, to empower us to be God's people in the world. And finally, uh, receiving the spiritual food and drink in the Eucharist, Sunday to Sunday, uh, month to month, year to year. Uh, where we're strengthened by that sacramental food and uh, given the opportunity to meet the challenges and the opportunities that face us. So now I want to say some things about the bodily resurrection and current work that has been done. So I'll begin by telling you a story. I went to seminary a long time ago, and when I went to seminary, I would say in the scholarly community, both in the United States and in the West, in Europe, about 75% of the scholarly community, uh, where, uh, depending on where they arrayed themselves on a continuum, did not believe in the empty tomb and did not teach that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. 
and about 25% did. So part of that had to do with, uh, if you'll permit me, the influence of the German Lutheran New Testament scholars who come to this uh, from a different perspective. And many of the most uh, learned and controversial uh, people in that community did not believe in the resurrection because principally they believed that the gospel was legendary fiction and there was no way that we could get back to understand who Jesus was and what he was really like. And so there's no use using the gospels as a reliable guide. Uh, what the gospels constitute is the early preaching of the church and that's what our focus ought to be, the kerygma and what the proclamation is. Perhaps the most famous person in that group would be uh, Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann died in 1976, and he wrote a number of very important books. I read a recent book uh, that was discussing Bultmann's uh, scholarship with regard to the gospel according to St. John. He wrote a magisterial commentary on the gospel according to St. John, and as this commentator said, he was almost completely wrong. So you need to know that the situation on the ground is fluid. Now, in 2014, I would say 75% of the scholarly community in Europe and in the United States we, including England and Europe, uh, would believe that there is sound historical evidence to support the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I'm speaking about the historical evidence, the, the way in which people do history, and that 25% remain radically skeptical. And how this has happened is very interesting because if you were to array the scholarship along a continuum, let's say A, B, C, D, E, A and B, and C to some extent would be the people who believe in the bodily resurrection. And D and E would be the great skeptics. So what we're beginning to see is the D's and the E's are moving to say, C minus or C or C plus and in some cases B minus. So the reason for that I think is because the way in which the scholarship is being done and how in the general dialogue with people of a variety of views on these matters uh, have come now to have some common ground for their conversation and how they understand what it is that, that we're uh, talking about. So if this doesn't go too much over people's heads, I'll give you an explanation in one sense. Uh, New Testament scholarship would say, certainly what I was taught and continues to be uh, perhaps the majority opinion, would say uh, of the 13 letters in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul, six or seven are authentic. That means they are Pauline. Paul wrote them. And there is a way to get to that in, in scholarly work, in historical work, to demonstrate that he wrote them. The, the doubted letters, people have little, you know, changes. Some people add one or take one away. But six or seven is uh, the number that most everyone agrees with. 
And because we understand that Paul wrote them, we also understand historically what Paul was doing and maybe uh, where he got his material. Because in the earliest accounts of the resurrection we have in the New Testament, they come from Paul. Chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, an undoubted letter of Paul, speaks about having been raised with Christ and that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And he spends the whole of chapter 15 on this. And so historians of, uh, ancient and the, of the ancient Near East have studied this and realized, well, where did Paul get his information? And how recently did he get his information from the time that Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead bodily and ascended into heaven to where he possessed it and began to write it down? Because we can date his epistles. We know when they were written. So it appears at this point that Paul may have received that uh, as recent as one year after the Christ event. So if Jesus died in 33 AD, he got this information in Jerusalem in 34, 35. So when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was describing something that he'd experienced and received from the apostles because he says about this, the story of the resurrection, the same thing that he says about the Eucharist, which is also the earliest material we have in the New Testament about the institution of the Eucharist. He said, this I received and I am handing on to you. That's what a rabbi would say when he is commending the tradition to others, not handing down, but handing on. And so we begin to see, well, there might be some way in which we can have uh, some common ground on this. In fact, the, the, the darling now of the extreme skeptics in books, selling a lot of books, is a guy named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman was the Pre, one of the premier textual critics of the New Testament. He co-authored with Bruce, Bruce Metzger, Mr. Text of the New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, the last edition before Dr. Metzger, Metzger died of the text of the New Testament, the most recent revision. And he wrote several books. He's written several books now. Uh, his doctoral thesis was The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, and it was put into a popular version that has sold a ton of books called Misquoting Jesus. He's the guy who gave us the information about there being one year between the Christ event and the transmission of the resurrection story. And he agrees with the scholars who can make that contention. So that means that we're moving in a direction which may be important uh, in that regard. Uh, E.P. Sanders, another New Testament uh, scholar, when he speaks about th this, uh, the resurrection and so forth, he first wants to say this. Uh, when we talk about history, history has two meanings. What happened and we writing about what happened. And all historians select and arrange so if I go see my grandson Lucas 
in Vancouver. And I'm up there for three or four days, and I come back, and people ask me about what my visit is like. I'm going to report to, to them the events, but I'm going to select and arrange. If I were to tell you everything, you'd be bored to death. So I'm not going to say I went to the Capilano Inn and Suites and put my key in the door and I went in there and then I went uh, over to my son's restaurant and ate dinner and then I did that. I would, I would sort of select and arrange, right, about the points. That's what the biblical witness does. That's what the biblical writer does. Now, if you come to this because of the prevailing views that have been around for a long, long time now with what is called a hermeneutic of suspicion, you are going to say that people have written this because they have uh, some axe to grind or they wish to assert a particular point of view and give a spin that advances their point of view. E.P. Sanders initially says when he talks about the language of resurrection in the Greek text using different words than the story of ra the raising of Lazarus, for example, he uses different Greek. When he talks about th these, these uh, stories of the resurrection, it looks as if they were trying very hard to say something for which they themselves knew that they did not possess adequate language. None of the resurrection stories agree. Where there is almost universal agreement is that the women went there first. Mary Magdalene, Mary, Salome, they went there first. Now, why is that important? Well, in the ancient Near East, in first century Palestine, you don't mention women. They're invisible unless you have no, no other choice because there's information that has come back to you that they went to the tomb and they found it empty and they came and told other people that they had. You know, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, Mary Magdalene is called the Apostle to the Apostles. A lot has gotten lost in the last 2,000 years, don't you think? But it adds veracity to this because it is counterintuitive. And people would be reluctant to mention this if it were not, in fact, true and that it did happen. Sanders goes on to say, I do not regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation. Many of the people in these lists of who, who saw the risen Jesus were to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord and several of them would die for their cause. Moreover, a calculated deception should have produced great unanimity. Instead, there seemed to have been competitors. I saw him first. No, I did. Paul's tradition that 500 people saw Jesus at the same time has led some people to suggest that Jesus' followers suffered mass hysteria. But mass hysteria does not explain the other traditions. So this can get pretty intricate, but this is how the history is being done. Everybody selects and arrange. One of the things that happens where you had Rudolf Bultmann and people who still like him would say, uh, interpretation is here and history is here. 
Well, history and interpretation are one thing. There is no such thing as an objective historical view. It doesn't exist. People who say that are not correct. All of us bring our own internal states to the examination of anything, whether it's deep or superficial. That's what we do. And in quantum physics, at the turn of the 20th century and earlier, you had people telling us things now, it still bogs my mind. You cannot measure the movement of an electron. You can measure its movement or you can measure its location. But you cannot do both at the same time. Or the thing observed changes by the act of observation and more to the point, the subjective state of the person examining it affects this. You know, so we might as well put to rest the idea that, well, there's history here and interpretation here. They're one thing. And that explains why there are so many plural explanations of the resurrection. We get one today in John's Gospel. We get the last resurrection appearance in his Gospel where Jesus appears to the apostles and Thomas is not there. By the way, here's erudition just because. Thomas means twin, and it's in, it's in parenthesis, twin, twin. So what John is doing is explaining to us that Thomas means twin, because in the original language, Didymus is what his name is, and it means twin. So Thomas isn't going to believe it until he sees Jesus and he wasn't there, and he said, I've got to touch him and I have to see his wounds and I have to do that. And so uh, he goes away and Jesus comes back again. Now, there's a lot of stuff, isn't there, about passing through doors and, and doing all of this kind of stuff. We'll just not get into that today. But he appears and he speaks to the apostles and he bestows on them the power of the keys, which is the power to forgive or retain sins. And he breathes on them. When I got ordained a priest, Bishop Hart in Arizona breathed on me when he ordained me. Afterwards, he went, I never forgot it. So he breathes on all of the apostles and he gives them the power to forgive. So whatsoever sins are retained, uh, you, you, you retain, they are retained in heaven. And whatsoever sins you forgive on earth are forgiven in heaven. And then after that, Thomas feels his wounds and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And many people did because of the primitive preaching of the church and their surety that that was the core message of the early Christian church was the resurrection, the empty tomb, the resurrection. And the deity of Christ, as a matter of fact, but that's another matter. That's what the core was, and that's what they were talking about. Now, this is usually the time when the preacher is going to say, well, you know, doubt is healthy. 
you should uh, uh, embrace your doubts, and uh, doubting is not something that's a bad thing to do, and all of that is absolutely true. But it's also important to say, apropos of what I've just said about the resurrection, that there can be an overweening doubting that does not serve to build up but to tear down. We need to remind ourselves that the opposite of doubt is not faith, it's certainty. And so if you and I are going to spend our lives trying to get certainty, we're going to have an unhappy journey. I heard someone say to me, though, once, some people would rather be right than happy. So maybe that's a spiritual issue that we all uh, need to struggle with. So you should embrace your doubts, but also know that uh, you need to strengthen your faith. When we're baptized... We believe in our church and in our theology, the, the theology of the Catholic Church of the West, that we receive three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And so the process of the Christian life is to learn how we touch those virtues as we live how we're able to express to others in the world faith, hope, and love. Faith, trust. Trust in God. Hope, honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. And love, which mirrors to others God's love. When Jesus speaks about loving one another, and Paul speaks about loving one another, they use a Greek word called agape. And in Greek before that, it meant love generally, agape, love generally. And the Christian church sharpened the meaning of agape and its use, Paul and the Gospels, as the love that is loved without regard to the loveliness of the object towards which that love is directed. In other words, it means selfless love. It means love that is given without the desire for a payback. And so it's this community of faith who were fueled and inspired by the bodily resurrection of Jesus who wished to communicate that message to the world. So when we read texts like this, we say, you know, we need to continue to be instruments of that agape. We need to be instruments of the possibility of new life and transformation. You know, new life and transformation. In the Greek, it's metamorphosis. You've heard that word. So we're engaged in a continuous process of metamorphizing, if that's if it's a word, uh, to be God's people in the world. Try a little of it this week. Amen.